Hi, I'm Caroline Stocks from Portrait Health Today, and today I'm here with Jean Gard, who is a USDA veterinary medical officer. Jean, thanks for joining us. Um, I have to say, you win the prize for this year's most interesting title <laughs> at the uh, American Association of Avian Pathologists Conference. Um, sex and the single salmonella, what, don't, uh, what we don't know hurts us. Yes. Um, it sounds a bit like the title of a self-help book, to be honest. Um, so what is it that we don't know and, and how does it hurt us? Well. We've known for a long time that salmonella and other bacteria have a sexual form of reproduction. But basically, it's been kept in the microbiology books and not applied to the issue of food safety. And what I have found by applying some of the diagnostic techniques I've developed along with collaborators is that um, the concept of bacteria exchanging whole sections of their chromosome coming up with hybrid strains, the equivalent is bacterial sex basically, is probably much more common than anybody um, uh, has assessed before because now we have these huge genome databases that I can go in with my DNA sections and then analyze what's going on. So we've got some new information and other investigators have also developed great databases now based on genome sequences. And so we always are dealing with this sort of like 10% that doesn't fit any category. 10% of what looks like new strains and new types all within salmonella. We can tell it's salmonella. There's lots that tell us that it's salmonella. But it doesn't quite fit any category. And the, uh, a lot of other work I've done is on phenotypic differentiation. In other words, how does bacteria change its cell shape, its cell growth, and even the virulence factors that it expresses. And when I put it all together, I can no longer look at bacteria as simple unicellular organisms undergoing binary fission for reproduction. I see them as a hive of bees. And within that hive, there are queens that are really meant to produce new strains and new workers. Now, they're going to be in the minority. And these, these um, cells that are better at undergoing sexual reproduction are going to fall underneath our current um, radar for our detection mechanism. So I think we're excellent at detecting the workers, all those workers out there gathering honey or actually in our case infecting us. Um, but what we're not good at is recognizing the origin of all these new strains. So I feel like we are caught in a cycle of where we're seeing salmonella expand at time, certain times through the food safety system, and I call that clonal expansion. And that's kind of, we've gotten very good at detecting that. But then there has to be a cycle of chromosomal repair as all those workers get damaged basically out there and they accumulate mutations. So what we're not really figuring in is how does salmonella repair its chromosome to keep coming back around and around and around. And it's a cycle that I want to break because it's been one of the more frustrating aspects of my work is that we have not seen 
the incidence of human salmonellosis reduce for about 15 years in the United States. Stays on a plateau, but it's constantly wanting to bump up a little bit all the time. And if we don't keep a persistent um, control and apply all of our regulations, it, will, it would come roaring back in an instant. So I sort of want to break through that plateau and find that biology that makes salmonella um, so exceptional as a pathogen. So how do you go about breaking that down? How, how can producers actually start to get more of a handle on controlling it? Um, one of the things we've, we've got now, is we've got excellent new techniques for um, telling not just what are the antigens on the outside of the bacterial cell, but now we can see how those antigens match up with the DNA that's present. So there are simple streamlined methods now that we can begin to use to identify those real oddballs that may be the source of hybrid strains getting ready to expand. Um, it it, in that, applying that approach that there are uh, low incident strains that are still yet very, very important that um, I think can be studied in all of our food production systems, like on the farm, um, in the processing plant. And what I would be looking for is those areas that may be producing a variety of salmonella serotypes. So we know we have some super bad actors, and we're really good at detecting them. But I want to know, where are you seeing unusual clusters of multiple serotypes kind of emerging? Because that's probably more your nest. That, that is those babies coming out. Not all, not all those babies are going to make it. In fact, probably the great majority of these, of these incipient strains, these, these newcomers, don't make it. But it's just that once in a while, one of them is really matched with this environment, and it can, and it can then begin growing and undergoing that clonal expansion, as only bacteria do. We, we can't do clonal expansion. We can only do sexual reproduction. Bacteria does everything. So, so that is one of the amazing properties of bacteria compared to us. So um, I think there would be new ways of testing and looking at, at the farm and also in uh, production facilities. But nothing ever, ever takes the place of the consumer handling their food correctly. We can do everything that we do, and at the end of the day, if the consumer doesn't handle the product correctly, then they, then they are uh, you know, adding to the problem. So education is always, always an important part of this picture. So you've been involved uh, with a formula which, which has some implications for food safety. Foodborne illness is the sum function of four major compartments, environmental opportunity, genetic change, clonal expansion, and virulence factors. But connecting all of those four compartments is something that I refer to as flow, which is all those management factors, hygiene issues, 
things that go wrong as we're sitting there handling our food. It could be a, a wild mouse coming on farm that's carrying salmonella and it gets into the feed or something like that. Or it could be the college student away from home for the first time doesn't wash his hands or leaves the chicken out on the counter for five hours. You know, any of those things I consider flow because they're, they're, they're so variable and, and so myriad that, that um, one always has to keep in mind that, that that flow contributes to any one of the major compartments then spreading out and crossing over into the other compartments. So that's, that's kind of the formula that I use. So of all of the, um, the salmonella serotypes that are around at the moment, which are the perhaps two most prominent? Oh, the two most prominent in the United States are Enteritidis and Typhimurium. And Enteritidis is actually extremely prevalent throughout Europe, even more so than Typhimurium. Enteritidis and Typhimurium together account for 40% of all of our foodborne illness from salmonella here in the United States. So, and then enteritidis alone drives the incidence of salmonellosis all in many, many countries around the world. It is the world's most prevalent serotype. But typhimurium is, is neck and neck with it in many circumstances. And then there are about three or four others that we consider very important because they show aspects of trying to eke up the way the other two have. But for two, three, four, Five decades, five decades for typhimurium has been prominent, and then for enteritidis, at least three decades, or it's approaching four now. So um, those two are what I call pinnacle pathogens. They have got a perfectly optimized genome for the environments that we give them, and uh, from our analyses, those two appear to undergo this chromosomal repair, homologous recombination, more than any of the other serotypes. Um, can you explain which ones are most likely to recombine and what the, what the problem could be? Enteritidis is known as a fairly clonal genome. What we can see is over time you get patterns of little mutations, just little point mutations here, there, yonder. Now this might be the difference between, sometimes it's the difference between having brown or blue eyes, sometimes it doesn't do anything at all to the, to the way the organism works, but every once in a while one of those genetic changes um, can harm the bacteria, which means it's going to need to go through a cycle of repair. We've even identified one that will actually make it more virulent, but then it gets stuck. Once it gets this mutation, it's stuck on an evolutionary pathway. I call it being stuck in the worker bee mode. It is never going to be a queen. It cannot. It's lost its plasticity. It must be a worker, and, uh, but it is very virulent when, it, when it's in that stage. It's the workers that sting, not the queen. What we, what we want to know are the environments where this chromosomal repair could be taking place and under what circumstances. So I do a lot of other th analyses. Uh, for example, uh, we have a phenotype microarray approach with, which lets us look at over 900 environmental conditions, pH, sulfur content, all of these different uh, aspects, um, sugars, nitrogen sources, and all that. And 
so I am curious to see which, which of these different environments might allow more of the queen developmental pathway to emerge. I don't know if you're familiar with bees at all, but, but when, the, when the hive wants a queen to develop, they feed her royal jelly. So is there a royal jelly for bacteria that lets then this super recombining um, cell develop? And I, I think those, question, those are all questions that are just open for research and for application to making food safety um, better for people. We know a lot about the mechanics of sexual reproduction in bacteria. There have been some incredible scientists. There have been Nobel Prizes awarded back in the decades ago for finding things like um, transduction of DNA and um, how bacteria take up DNA from the environment. But it's never ever really been applied to the problems that we, we have today. The technology's there. I don't, other than tweaking and adapting to the poultry industry, uh, you're not talking about completely rebuilding Rome here. So it's just a different way of looking at it and looking in, and forming your hypotheses a different way and saying, look, the, the phenotypes that aren't necessarily the most virulent are interesting. They're out there, we know they're out there, we know there are a lot of these. Are they the source of all of this DNA that Salmonella constantly reconstitutes itself with over and over and over again? So, so from a practical level then, on farm, how would a producer know if they have got a, a recombination of Salmonella? Well, so, um, Food Safety Inspection Service is taking samples, FDA takes samples, farmers. I know a lot of producers who have excellent laboratory um, capabilities. Well, what they do is if they have a, a stringent sampling program, if they see that there's some condition that's generating serotypes, even if it's not the most uh, pathogenic ones or the ones that are regulated, that might be a time to call in uh, a scientist to help say, well, let's see what's going on here. Why are you getting serotype diversity at this place in the scalder tank or, or at, uh, in the final product? Why, are you, why did we find five serotypes here, there, and yonder? Even if they're uh, not virulent at all, even if they are not the pathogenic ones, it could be an indication that you do have a little nest somewhere. Let's go find the nest and eradicate it. So um, one thing we do know about bees and their developmental pathways is they're extremely environmentally sensitive. And if you can change that environment that allows all of this to go on, then you can wipe out that, that process of, of repairing the genome all the time. It's very interesting to be able to connect bees with a with a poultry disease. Well, I can't I can't look at bacteria any other way. Now you might now there might be an ant analogy or something like that, but but they are it's actually a very complex dynamic population and so much more than being just a unicellular organism that seems to be like robotic. There there is communication between bacteria. There's there is differentiation. They have they have different purposes, um, and I think right now we're we're really very good at seeing certain parts 
and then other parts are a complete mystery to us. Mm -hmm.